All right, good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. Welcome to the Vineyard. Glad you're here. My name is Adam Russell. I'm the pastor here at the Vineyard. And uh, really pleased to have you guys with us. Everybody good? Yeah. Yeah, wasn't worship great this morning? Wow. Um, First service was bananas. I mean, truly, truly bananas. Um, To put it in C.S. Lewis vernacular, we fell through the back of the wardrobe and we went to Narnia for a while. It was awesome. So second service was good too, but first service was even more awesome. Am I allowed to say that? I just said it. I think so. Anyway, however, that has nothing to do with what I want to talk to you about tonight, this morning. I'm very scrambled. I did not preach very good the first service. My content is incredible this morning. My delivery has not been great. If you're a new person, I just want to ask for some pre-forgiveness. I want to talk to you this morning about the generous heart. And I want to read to you one scripture here. This is out of the book of Proverbs. I just can't seem to get away from it, so we'll just go there. This is what the book of Proverbs says. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Then He will fill your barns with grain. And your vats will overflow with good wine. Not yellowtail. No. There is no yellowtail in heaven. It's not there. There's no barefoot in heaven. It doesn't exist. It's it's good wine. About 15% of the people in the room just got those two jokes. I'm profoundly relevant. Awesome. I want to begin the message this morning by asking you a question. And the question I want to ask is this. How do you know when you've met a real Christian? How, how do you know when you've met somebody whose life has been profoundly shaped by an encounter with Jesus? How can you tell if the person you're talking to has really had a transactional thing with God And whatever that was, it changed them from being whoever they used to be into being who they are now, which is a real believer. How can you tell? How can you tell? First first service, Dr. Ray said, uh, the ichthus pen. (laughs) Maybe not. Ryan, what were you going to say? They treat you better than you deserve. Does everybody agree with that? I agree with that. Ryan, gold star. Gold star. So maybe it isn't the ichthus lapel pin. Maybe it isn't the crazy bumper stickers that Christians put on their car. And I know for sure it isn't the whacked out Facebook rants that everyone posts. Amen. You know, it's like, can we just agree as a church on one thing? That crazy Facebook rants about anything, political, 50 shades of gray, this or that, it's not convincing anyone. Like, no one cares. No one cares. We, we all agree, right? Dude, we are, this is anointed. Everyone just agreed. Anyway, how do you know if you've met a Christian? I agree with Ryan. There's probably a lot of ways that you can tell that you've met a Christian, but probably the very best way to tell that you've met somebody who's really, really had some kind of an encounter with God is that they're generous. Over and over again, If I go through my own experience of meeting people, people who have met God, 
over and over again, the most common denominator for people who have really, really met God is that they're generous. Isn't it true? Just think about the people who have been, been Jesus to you. Think about all the people who have been Jesus to you in your walk with God or in your faith journey and tell me that they were not generous. Has a stingy person ever been generous to you? Has a stingy person ever been Jesus to you? I'm preaching awesome this morning. No. See, there's something about stinginess that is simply antithetical to the kingdom of God. Uh, the entire grain of the universe, if we can think of it this way, think of an oak board. You know how oak boards have grain to them? The universe has grain as well. The entire grain of the universe is running in a particular direction, and the grain of the universe is running in the direction of generosity and giving. If you, if you run counter to that grain, you will get splinters in your heart. You will get splinters in your heart. People who really, really know God are always givers. In a world of takers, real Christians are those who are moving in another direction. If you meet somebody, if you meet somebody who's greedy, if you meet somebody who's hanging on with both fists clenched just as hard as they can, if you meet somebody who's completely blind to the fact that they're a selfish person, you're meeting somebody that hasn't had an encounter with Jesus at a profoundly deep level yet. That's what you're meeting. Now, it seems I've been fortunate enough to have a couple really amazing examples of generosity in my life. In fact, I've had so many examples that I can't tell all the stories, but I do want to tell you two this morning. I've had two, two really amazing bosses in my life, and, and both of them were two of my first bosses. Now, my very first boss uh, was a guy named Rob and he, here in town, and he owned a landscaping company. And I started working for him when I was 14. He worked so hard. Anyway, Rob was just this, just, I don't know how to describe it other than he was just an example of uh, extreme and radical generosity to me the entire time that I worked for him. And even in the years since I've worked for him, always been that same person. Now, this is really funny. This is the story that just sort of puts in perspective who Rob is and who he was to me. When I was 16, I'd been working for him for two years and I was going to prom and I was taking Heather to prom, the very same Heather that I'm still married to. We've been together that long. We've been together for 20 years. That's bananas as well. Anyway, Rob comes to me. He says, hey, Adam, you going to prom? I said, yes, I'm going to prom. He says, you're probably taking Heather, right? I said, yes, I'm taking Heather. He says, I have an idea. I says, what is that? And he said, would you like to take my Porsche 911 to prom? I'm 16. I said, yes. (laughs) And when I was 16 years old, I took a Porsche 911, six-speed, the one with the whale tail. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about? The guys in the room especially know. I'm talking about the one with the whale, a white one, the black whale tail, black mag wheels, six-speed, leather, red leather interior. Red leather interior. And, I, and, I, and he gave it to me a day early so I could drive it around and have fun. And he, when he gave it to me, it was completely full of gas. Who, do, who does it? I've worked it. I I worked that car. (laughs) It was a sad moment when I had to give it back to him. But you have to ask yourself, what kind of person gives a 16-year-old boy a Porsche 911 for his prom? Wow. It's crazy. Then I had another boss. I moved. uh, Heather and I, we left Campbellsville. We went to Charlotte, North Carolina. We didn't have jobs. 
we just moved. We had a few bucks, but not many. And in three days of having no job, I was getting nervous. So I started calling people, started calling people in the yellow pages looking for jobs. I mean, you know, this is like, this is the stone age. I was going through the yellow pages like, oh, this is, I don't know, calling people. Hey, you, you are you hiring? No, click. I'm just going one after another. And I finally get in contact with somebody who is actually hiring and will let me come see them. It's another landscape company. I go and see them. I have an interview with this guy. His name is Tom. And we sat and we talked together for about 30 minutes. And after a 30-minute talk, when he and I don't know each other at all, there are no relationship ties. We don't know anybody that knows anybody, you know? Complete strangers. We sit and we talk for 30 minutes. And after 30 minutes, Tom gives me an amazing job. He gives me an amazing job with the biggest salary that I've ever had up to that moment. He gives me a company truck, and he pays all of my medical benefits. I go home that day with a job, like a real big boy job, like in the city. I go home. I remember when I walked through the door at our apartment, I told Heather, I said, babe, we're not going to starve. I said, we're going to do really good. And I worked for Tom for about eight months. And after eight months, after eight months, I felt like the Lord was saying, you need to go to ministry school. Like you, you just, you just need to do this. Go to ministry school. The only problem with going to ministry school is that I would have to quit my full-time job, which is a thing, but it's not the worst thing, except it was sort of the worst thing for us. Cause in that moment, in that particular moment, Heather and I had become pregnant and we were five months pregnant with river. And so leaving my job meant that I was going to leave my income and it meant that I was going to lose my truck and it meant that I was going to lose my medical benefits. How many of you understand that having babies are expensive? Yes. But I quit my job. I felt like that's what God said to do. I did it. Boom. Quit my job. And Tom calls me on the day after I quit my job. And he says, Adam, here's what I think. I think you're supposed to quit your job. I think you're supposed to go to ministry school. And he says, I think I'm supposed to pay your medical benefits for the next four months. And any expenses that you have beyond insurance, I'm going to cover it. And so for four months, he paid my medical benefits and my wife's medical benefits out of his pocket. He covered everything that the hospital wanted to charge beyond insurance. And we left Charlotte with River and no money out of our pocket. How many of you understand that the only kind of person who does that is a Christian? Like a real one. Not a fake. You know, everybody in the South is a Christian. You're a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I know God. Not really. Not, not a Southern Christian. I'm talking about like a real one. <laughs> the reason we laugh is because we know this is true. See, there's this buzz that sits around giving. There's this aroma that rises off of generous people, and it feels like God, and it smells like Jesus. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to talk to you this morning about generosity I want to talk to you specifically about money, and if I can be even more specific, I want to talk to you about your money. I don't think I've done this at the Vineyard in over three years. This morning, I want to have a conversation with you about your money. Everybody all right with that? Yeah, probably not, but some people shook their head. See, here's the deal. I actually know a thing or two about this conversation. Uh, you do as well. Here's what I know. I know that there's all kinds of emotions that spring up as soon as the pastor stands in front of the church and begins to talk about money, I know that lots of you right now are getting really nervous. You're like, worship was awesome, now it's going to be ruined by this guy. 
I know a lot of emotions spring up from this kind of talk. And I would like to say this. It's actually an okay thing that lots of emotions spring up from this talk. One of the things that tells us is that we're on the right track. Because a lot of times when pastors begin to talk to their churches about money, uh, some emotions spring up. Things like guilt or things like shame or in some cases things like just anxiety or uh, for some people even anger. And here's what I have learned through being with people and pastoring for several years. I know that every single time intense emotions of anger, guilt, shame, or anxiety come up, I know that every single time that we're actually on the right track and that's something God wants to talk about the most. The things that make us the most nervous are the things that he's most interested in. So good, we're probably on the right track. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I want to say a couple things right up front as well. If the conversation about money makes you feel guilt and shame, that's coming from a place. It's coming from a place, and Jesus wants to talk to you about it. If the, if the subject of giving or generosity makes you feel guilty or ashamed, you really should let it go. Uh, You've got to let it go because it's not God. God doesn't make people feel guilty or shameful. He convicts people. Conviction is way different than condemnation. Condemnation says, I am the problem. Conviction says, I have a problem, and there's hope for change. There's always, always, always hope for change that sits around conviction. Condemnation never does. And so if you feel guilty or shamed, it's not God. You've got to let it go. And if you're giving, if you are currently giving because of guilt or shame, uh, that's not a kingdom life and isn't good for you. just want to say that. Uh, secondly, I'd also like to say that if you feel angry when a preacher talks about money, that's also coming from a place. And it's probably coming from these kinds of places. Places like this. Maybe you've heard a bunch of stories about pastors who stole from the church. Y'all heard that story, haven't you? It's not a story, it's real. People do that. I haven't, thank you, Lord, but some people do. Or maybe you've seen a TV preacher make bogus promises to vulnerable people. Y'all seen that one? Stinks. I'd like to say this. Uh, When preachers steal from the church or TV preachers make bogus promises to people who are vulnerable, that makes me angry too. Like, it makes sense. But here's the other thing I'd like to say. Just because some guys have manipulated and cheated, it doesn't mean that everybody does. And it doesn't mean that God wouldn't have a few things to say anyhow. Sometimes the subject aggravates us for good reasons, and then other times it's just because we swim in particular and peculiar kind of cultural waters. See, the cultural waters that we swim in right now in America, they are so consumeristic and they're so materialistic that any time this conversation comes up, it makes us really, really nervous. Because the, the dominant narrative in America right now is this. You are worth your net worth. That's the dominant narrative. And the gods of this age, the gods of America, are totally cool with God and his kingdom so long as it doesn't inhibit our ability to make a profit or to get more stuff to stick in our garage. But as soon as we begin to have this conversation in a way that may affect profits or alter what we can put in our garage, woo, all kinds of stuff gets stirred up. As an example, I was listening to Rich Nathan this last week. Rich Nathan is the pastor of the Vineyard Church in Columbus, Ohio. He's the pastor of the biggest vineyard church in the world. I think it's like 13,000 or 14,000 people. It's massive. We call it Six Flags Over Vineyard Jesus. (laughs) With affection, though. With affection. Um, But I was listening to Rich, and, and Rich said something that I thought was so profound. Rich said this. He said that in his 30 plus years of ministry, that he's had people come into his office and confess all kinds of sin. 
all kinds of sin. He's had people come into his office and confess infidelity. He's had people come into his office and confess uh, addiction to internet pornography. He's had, his, he's had people come into his office and confess anger and rage or relational meltdowns. He's had all, People have confessed every single thing in the world in the last 30 years except one thing. He said in 30 years... No one has ever come into his office and confessed that they were a greedy or an ungenerous person. Wow. Wow. My experience has been similar. And part of what this tells us is this. It tells us, this, it tells us that we're more able to admit that we are adulterous than ungiving. Isn't that amazing? We are more able to admit that we're really, really angry and that we're ragers than we are ungenerous. I I believe that one of the reasons that this exists, one of the reasons that we're unable to admit that we're ungenerous is because we don't believe we are and we don't believe we are because we're completely blind. The gods of this age have blinded us. So how do we overcome this blindness and become radically generous people? People who... Honor God with their wealth, as the scriptures say. Well, here's how. The beginning of generosity and the beginning of becoming a giver, and not just a giver, but a giver with a cheerful heart. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a hilarious giver. The beginning of being that kind of person is to see the generous God. Again, the grain of the universe is running in a particular direction, and it's running in the direction of generosity. It may not look like it. Culture may have a different narrative, but that's the true flow. And if you go against that grain, you're going to get a splinter in your heart. So the beginning of being a generous person is you actually have to be able to see that God is the generous God. So, for instance, it works like this. Everybody knows that Genesis tells us this. tells us that God spoke the worlds into existence by his words. And that creational moment isn't just telling us that God is a creator, but it's telling us even more fundamentally than that, that God is a life giver. You're here because God gave you life. So God speaks the worlds into existence by his words, but then it tells us in Genesis something else, something that's way more heart arresting. God spoke everything in creation that exists except one thing. He did not speak Adam into creation. He got down on his hands and knees, however this was, and it says he formed him from the dust of the earth. Our God is a God who has his hands dirty. He has his hands dirty, and he lifts Adam up, and he breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. And this breath of life that Adam had and that we now have is not some abstract metaphorical breath of life it is his actual breath and his actual life god is a life giver he's a life like we're here you are who you are but it actually goes even deeper than that it's not that adam it's not that god formed what looks like people out of the ground and it's not like he just animated him but it's that god gave people capacity particular special kinds of capacity, capacity that everybody in this room has. And it's the capacity not just to move, not just to breathe in and breathe out, but it's the capacity 
to be like God and to begin to shape the existence that we have. He gave you a capacity to think. He gave you a capacity to feel. He gave you a capacity to dream. He gave you a capacity to shape the existence that you actually have. How many of you understand that that is also another kind of life? God gave you that capacity. And then people chose death. This is amazing. People chose death. And then the God who gave life and gave capacity Two people chose death. And then after that, God gives his son. The most famous scripture in the whole Bible is, for God so loved the world that he what? Gave his what? Only son. God gave his son. See, the father is a giver. The father is a giver. Over and over again. Genesis, the gospels, everything in between. The thing that comes up over and over again is that God is a giver. He's a giver of life. And then he's a giver of life again. He gives his son. And I think it's really important that John notes that he gives his only son. Think about that. He gives his only son. You have to ask yourself, what kind of person gives treasure like Jesus to people who are hell-bent? Stingy person? Of course not. God is fantastically generous. He gives his very best to the very worst. That'll wreck your brain if you think about it very much. And then, not only does God give life, not only does God give his son, but then the son gives his own life. And he gives his blood, like his actual blood. Not metaphorical blood, but actual blood. You have to see Jesus on the cross. His arms wide open. Like everything about the picture is telling you a generosity story. Jesus didn't die like this. And Jesus didn't die like this. Jesus died like this, like this. How many of you understand that this is also telling us something about who God is and who Jesus is? He's a profoundly generous person. He gave his actual blood. Anybody here ever cut themselves? Anybody here like bleeding? Anybody enjoy that? You know what I love? I just love bleeding. It's just fantastic. Anybody ever gone to one of those, uh, one of those torture vans where they... They extract blood from you. That's what I call them. I mean, you may call it the Red Cross. I call them torture vans where they steal your blood. I have a medical issue. It's not diagnosed. It's just I have issues with medical anything. And when they put that needle in my body, I mean, it's not the needle that bothers me. I mean, you guys can tell I've got tattoos. Like the needle doesn't bother me. That's not the problem. It's just that when I feel that needle go in, the pain is not the issue. It's just as soon as my blood, like my actual blood, not my metaphorical blood, but as soon as my actual blood begins to fill up that tube and go into that bag, it feels like all of my life is running out of my arm and into a piece of plastic. It's a torture vehicle. Jesus gives his blood, like his life, his stuff, the thing that animates him. And he does it on the cross. And even the picture is one of generosity. It's wide open, hands open, arms open, and it's his blood flowing out. Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. Have you ever noticed that Jesus says that? And it's, have you ever considered why he says no one takes it from him? He wants people to know that he gives it. I give it freely. What's the message? God is profoundly generous. God is profoundly generous. If there is a picture in your mind of an angry, stingy guy in heaven with a long beard, you've got a picture. It just isn't God. 
And see, this idea of generosity is so completely intertwined into the gospel that you cannot separate it from Christian practice. Let's consider a few pillars of Christian practice. Four in particular. Number one, let's consider forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Letting go. Does everybody agree that forgiveness is letting go? I do. Letting go. You could hang on to it, right? Like if somebody hurts you, harms you, or hurts your feelings, steps on your emotions, like for real, not fake, but like for real. You have a real reason to hang on to something, but because we're believers in Jesus, we let go, right? It's a picture of generosity. Like you you can't even do basic Christian stuff without having a flow of generosity in your life. Letting go. That's what it is. See Jesus on the cross. See his bloody body generosity. It's, an, it's a stunning image. Uh, here's another pillar. Uh, witness. Witness. Uh, this idea of speaking or saying something to the world about what we've seen and received in Jesus. See, the Gospels are full of people who have an encounter with Jesus. And then that encounter is so filling. That's the way I like to talk about it. If you read the Gospels, people encounter Jesus. And then the encounter is so filling that they have to go run and share with everybody what they just experienced. Does that make sense? This is another picture of generosity. So, for instance, when Jesus is crucified and buried late in the tomb, Mary Magdalene goes to the garden where he is at, but she meets the resurrected Jesus. She has such a stunning encounter with resurrected Jesus. She runs back to the apostles who are hiding behind locked doors and she gives them the news right this is see even witness is a picture of generosity moving right along another pillar of christian practice is worship and worship is the giving of one's heart to god what we did this morning but it's more than that it's it's giving one's voice it's one heart it's it's one's body it's it's giving one's mind uh, to to generously give that very single thing that we can withhold. That, that's why worship is so, so important and it's so formational because there is a thing or two in the universe that we can actually withhold from God. And we can withhold honor from Him and we can withhold praise and we can withhold blessing from Him. So this morning when we're in here and we're singing, Yours is the Kingdom, and yours is the glory, and yours is the power forever and ever. You guys, that is a stunning moment. You can't even enter into that unless you're a generous person, willing to give God the thing that you could actually withhold from Him. It's amazing. And then finally, ministry. Just just the whole idea of ministry. The word ministry really means service, and the idea that sits behind it is the idea of a waiter or a waitress waiting tables. It's this idea of you're giving your life so that someone else could be benefit. You're giving your life so someone else could have a good time. Now, how many of you understand that if you're ever, this is, this is basically a universal principle. If you're ever having a really great time at any moment, if you're ever having a really great time at any moment, it's probably because somebody that you either see or somebody that you do not see is not having a great time. Somebody is working, and in fact, somebody's probably not having a good time at all. You know that? See, part of what part of what it means to grow up and be a mature person is it means that you become aware of the fact that my good time is probably costing someone else 
a good time, and then you begin to enter into it, and you don't even care. If you're going to be a real follower of Jesus, you're going to be a ministry person, you're going to start waiting tables, you're going to start sweeping the floor, and you're going to begin to give your life away for someone else's benefit. You begin to take on a bad time so somebody else could have a good time. You begin to take on difficulty so, so, so that somebody else could have a blessing. Does this make sense? And the only way this happens is if you're a generous person. But you can't even do that until you see Jesus as generous. So being generous means seeing the generous God. Now here's what's ironic. The ironic thing about generosity is that you become rich by first being a taker. The world's full of takers, by the way. You become rich by first being a taker. See, when God came to us, and when God comes to us, we are in every single way takers, totally selfish. We have closed hands, and we have closed hearts. But when we see His amazing heart, if we get even a little bit of clarity, and we enter into reality, and we see His amazing heart, then we see His beautiful Son, And then by faith, we begin to believe that somehow or other, God is offering us life again. We begin to recognize, I'm dead, this is going nowhere. And God is beginning to reach out to me and offer me life. When we begin to believe that, have faith and put trust in that, and begin to put trust in Jesus, a particular thing happens. This is, I think this is hilarious, kind of. A particular thing happens, and the particular thing that happens is is that Jesus comes into our life. I want to put a scripture up here. John chapter 14. Jesus says this, when I'm raised to life again, you'll know that I'm in my Father and that you are, on, you are in me and I am in you. Who is in you? It is not a quick, trick question. It is actually open book. Who's in you? Who else? The Father, yeah. And if we read this passage a little bit fuller, we'd find out that the Holy Spirit is also in us. So everyone who begins to put faith in Jesus, everybody who gets a little bit of clarity and begins to trust that God is offering us life again and that it comes by Jesus, suddenly God comes to live inside of them. All of God comes to live inside of them. Now, when we say that Jesus lives inside of us, we need to consider for a moment what kind of Jesus came to live inside of us. The generous Jesus. You have unlimited God-like generosity living inside of you right now. This means that it's actually possible for you to be a generous person. Even if you're not. Even if right now you're currently not. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have every single thing it takes right now to be generous. You think, well, I don't have much money. That's not even what we're talking about right now. We're talking about the heart and the ability to be profoundly generous. It lives in you. It's alive. And then Paul says something in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to show you this. He says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, these words, they're everywhere. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich.
hey guys, I'm having a really hard time focusing. I, I mean, I, we love having family atmosphere. If we could just take the kids in the cafe for a minute, that'd be great. I can't even think right now. And that's my fault. It's not their fault. They're just kids. Appreciate it. I'm not even a bit angry either, just so you know. But God has made us rich. He's living inside of us, and he's made us rich. This means two things. It means that you have the capacity to be a generous person. It also means that right now, even though you may not feel like it, or even though you may not know it, it means that you actually have a substance to give. You think, I'm not a rich person. Somehow, because Jesus has taken up residence in you, you actually are a rich person. That's exactly what it means. He lives in us. And so, and so, what does it look like to practically honor God with your wealth? Well, I like the word that the Proverbs use. I love the word that the Proverbs use. It uses the word honor, and honor has to do with worship. What does it mean to worship God with our wealth? Well, I'm going to give you four brief categories real quick. Four brief categories, and we will wrap this up. Uh, the first way... For us to honor God with our wealth, the first way for us to worship God with our wealth is this. It means, it means that you and I can, can and should be generous with the local church. It means that we should be generous with the local church. That means, that means being a regular and a faithful financial contributor to the place where your spiritual and your communal needs are being met. So, Here's what that means. If you are a part of the vineyard. Now, here's the thing. We don't do church membership at the vineyard. There's nothing to sign. There's no letter. How do you know that you're a part of the vineyard? You know that you're a part of the vineyard when you come and you begin to give your time, your energy, and your money to us. We just, you're just of us. If this is your home, one way to begin to be a radically generous-hearted person, the first way, in my opinion, is to begin to financially support the ministry that supports you. Now, as with most things in God, there's a spiritual and a practical side to this. There's the spiritual side of growing to be like God, being a generous person. But then there's also just the practical side of, hey, if we're going to do this thing together, we need a space to worship. We need a place. And God's given us a place. But the place ain't free. Place is not free. And it takes all of us to have this place. It takes all of us to have this place. Not only that, but it takes all of us to take the next steps that this church needs to take. And by the way, we got some steps to take. We got some steps to take. How many of you understand that the kids' wing is broken? Like we can't fit anymore over there. And uh, by the way, in case you haven't noticed, we can't add on to this church. Uh, we can't even buy property behind us. Uh, UPS has bylaws that say they have to have so much property around them. We can't, even if we had all the money in the world, we can't even buy it. So we're going to have to make some steps here in the next few years. It takes all of us to make these steps. It's a practical and it's a spiritual thing. It means honoring God with your first fruits and honoring your local church. Um, So if this is your home, part of what it means is give to your home. See that your home runs well. And by the way, this is for everyone. This is for little kids. This is for teenagers. This is for college kids. This is for middle-aged people who have two great jobs and are really killing it. And this is also for uh, older folks who have retired. It takes everybody. I also want to say this. Parents, teach your kids how to give. Please teach your kids how to give. Start it early. Teach them that, uh, that a portion of every single thing that they get, uh, birthday money, Christmas money, uh, aunt and uncle just love you money, uh, mowing yard money. Teach your kids that there's a part of that that belongs 
to God and, and it belongs to his kingdom ministry. You, you need to learn early because if you wait until you're older, if you wait, sometimes we think like this. Well, I'll start giving when I, when I have a lot of money. You know, uh, giving to the church, that's what like 40-year-old people who are like, you know, go, who have two good jobs and corporate America, that's what they do. No, it's not. It's, it's what little kids have to do because if you wait till you're 40, it'll be really hard be really hard so learn early you might be thinking well i'm a college student i don't have anything uh, you, you might have more than you think you might have more than you think um and you can't give what you don't have that's not what we're even asking we're just saying that to the extent that even college people or high school kids y- you need to do this now do it young do it young don't wait till you're older it'll be so hard there's something about age that doesn't just calcify joints it oftentimes calcifies the heart Bless your local church. Second place to bless. Give to the poor. It's the reason that we receive, it's the reason here at the Vineyard that we receive uh, an offering once a month that goes to help the least of these. We call it the least of these offering. Give to the poor. I want to read you a passage out of second, out of Galatians chapter 2. Look, this is Paul, he's writing. This is kind of an amazing passage if you can back up and see what he's really saying. He says, And the leaders of the church, that being in Jerusalem, had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites. You've got to love Paul's attitude here. Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift of God in me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Look at verse 10. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. Who's writing this? The Apostle Paul. The great Apostle Paul. Like, capital P, Apostle Paul, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Like, you and I are sitting here probably because of some of his work that's grown up from the roots. And the Apostle Paul, who had been given the ministry of sharing the gospel to completely unreached groups, the thing that was always in his heart was to remember the poor. Now, the reason why it's so important for you and I to remember the poor is very simple. It's because you and I would rather forget the poor. If we're really honest, it's hard to remember the poor. And the reason it's hard to remember the poor is this. If we're also being honest, this sounds a little harsh, but I'm just trying to get real here for a moment. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's a reason poor people are poor. Every single time. And there's never one reason why poor people are poor. There's always like a hundred. It's always like a hundred reasons. And when you enter into that life, and when you enter into solidarity with, with people who are struggling like that, it's fatiguing. It's fatiguing. And the only way to be able to establish and give and give like Jesus gives, man, you got to be, you got to be connected to something deep. You got to be connected to something. We got to remember the poor. Uh, We got to remember the poor. And one of the things that, that we want to do even as a, as a church and definitely as a society is oftentimes we try to build structures where we can maybe get money or assistance to the poor, but it eliminates the, it it puts space between us. So we don't have to see it. We just would rather not see it. I, I would also like to say it's not just a matter of giving to the poor in terms of money, but also evaporating the space. Like coming into it and beginning to take on the pain. Does this make sense? 
Does this make sense? Like we need to remember the poor. Uh, Jesus says something really amazing in Matthew 25. He says that if you feed the hungry and if you clothe the naked, if you visit the sick, if you come to the prison, y'all remember what he said? He said, you did it to me. Now, oftentimes we think of Jesus as the person who goes and visits the sick and visits the poor and visits the hungry and clothes the naked, right? But one of the things that he's saying in Matthew 25, when he says that if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me, is he's saying that sometimes Jesus needs to be visited. It's not just that Jesus does these kinds of things. It's that Jesus is actually in the poor and in the vulnerable and in the naked. And there's a person, there, there is a Jesus you cannot meet if you only hang out with cool rich people. Bottom line. The kingdom of heaven never came because of cool. Not one time. Thirdly, we need to be generous and we need to be givers to missions. I'll try to speed up here. Giving to missions. It's this idea that over and over again, the apostles who preached the gospel all over the world, they were, they were blessed by sending churches, but they were mostly cared for by individuals. I don't have time to make that case for you now, but giving to missions. Is there a place on the globe that strikes your heart? Sow your actual money into it, church. Sow your money into it. And then finally, uh, a category that I call special projects. I love this. Special projects. Um, one of the things that Heather and I have done for many, many years is at the beginning of the year, uh, we get together and we pray, and this is the prayer. God, God, who are you giving to us this year? Who? Not what, who. Who are you giving to us this year? And the idea behind that prayer is, God, who, who are you inviting us to come in alongside and become a source of blessing to. And so every year, the Lord gives us a person. Someone to take care of. Uh, someone, to, someone to encourage. Not just with words, but with our actual money. Someone to sow into. Uh, I would suggest that everybody in here, uh, in, in addition to all those other categories, you need to have some room in your budget for special, special stuff. Like, is there somebody that God is saying, they have a call on their life, bless it. Or is there somebody who has a dream that you need to come alongside of and become a financial assistant to it and get on it? Now, I got this idea because there's these things called venture capitalists. Anybody ever heard of venture capitalism? Venture capitalism is a thing that exists in the world, and it's really big in, like, Silicon Valley. And there's whole corporations, and there's whole groups of guys and gals out in Silicon Valley, and they have a lot of money, and the only thing they do is they look around and they go, who has promise? Who's, who's got promise? I and then they go and they, they so obscene amounts of money into something that might have promise. I think it's a wonderful idea. The, the bad side of it is, is I think it's just pathetic that in the church, we don't have that same vision for people. We don't have that same vision for people. And I think this is something that God's inviting us into. Who's got promise or who needs care for? Sometimes what God wants to do is raise up a dream or raise up an idea. And then sometimes God might invite, be inviting you to step into a special project that is destined for for failure, but he doesn't, he doesn't mind because there is a part of who Jesus is that you will only experience in failure. If you can, if you can hear that, you know, sometimes we think, well, I just want to sow into people that are going to give me a good return on investment. Dude, there are some parts of who Jesus is that will never return an investment. God is not into efficiency. Just going to put that out there. 
And so we might be asking, well, how much do we give? Uh, Which, by the way, is a really funny question. Because the thing that sits behind the question of how much should we give is really a question of how little can I give and still be on the team, right? Yeah, uh, try that in any other area of your wife. Of your life, try that with your husband or your wife. Look, at husbands, look at your wife and tell, ask her this: How little do I have to love you before you divorce me? Point made. Point made. I will say this though: In the Old Testament, the people gave a tithe. Tithe means ten percent, and in my brain, that's kind of the baseline. Um, we're living in the New Covenant, and Hebrews says that we actually have better promises. We have better promises. That's what it says. So in my brain, I can't even imagine that Christians who have seen the beauty of God would give less than old covenant believers who had worse promises. That isn't meant to throw guilt and shame on people. I'm just saying that's probably the baseline. Does that make sense? Like, so if you heard that as guilt or shame, not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we got better promises. Better promises. And then the scripture says here in Proverbs, and I want to, point this out can we put the proverbs passage back up the scripture says here in proverbs that if you honor god with your wealth he'll fill your barns and your vats will overflow with good wine he'll increase your resources this very same idea is something that paul says in second corinthians chapter nine if you read it you'll see it so you might be asking well are we just giving to get is this a means of kingdom greed no of course not Here's what I actually believe. I believe that everybody who puts faith in Jesus has in a profound and real way already been made rich. And and here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus has made you rich. I believe that he has made me rich. And we're not just simply working the system here. We're not just simply giving so that we can get and become more greedy people. How many of you understand that God doesn't want to bless you so that you would ultimately ruin yourself and become a wicked person who doesn't love him. Does that make sense? But at the same time, you're already rich. So how do we hold this bit of tension together? Well, I think it works kind of like this. I believe Terry's already rich. I believe Misty's already rich. I believe that Connor's already rich. You guys all have faith in Jesus. And I believe that the way into the things that God really wants to give you is a heart of generosity because he knows if you're really, really moving in generosity that he can trust you with greater resources and that the greater resources that he trusts you with won't ruin you. God will never, ever, ever... The last thing God would want to do is fill your barns so that you could become an arrogant and a prideful person who hates God. Even though your barn is already full. Does this make sense? Generosity is, in a very real and a very profound way, is it's waking up to the reality that my barns are already full. I hope you can hear that. God doesn't want to ruin you. So church, let's be givers. Amen? Let's be generous. Like, like for real. Let's remember the church. Let's remember the poor. Let's remember God's mission in the world. And let's pray for special projects. Can we do that? Amen. Why don't you stand up? If we've got a ministry team this morning, come on up. And let's pray. We did this first service. It was kind of cool. I came up here. Why don't you put your hand on your heart? And we're going to do a repeat after me prayer, which is super bizarre. We're going to do that. 
I'll try to pray in a way that you can repeat after me. This is very difficult. This is like pastor PhD level stuff. Being able to pray so people can repeat after you. All right, here's what we'll do. Lord Jesus, give me a generous heart. A heart like Jesus. Hands wide open. Amen. Amen. Hey, give somebody a high five and a hug. If you need prayer for anything, we have a ministry team right up here. These lovely ladies know how to pray for people, and they will pray for you. Otherwise, have a good afternoon. And if you're staying for newcomer's lunch, hang out for about 10 minutes, and we will eat. Peace.